following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 tonight. Uh, We're continuing this week in our 12-week study through the book of Ephesians. Uh, We're down to this week and next week. And then the next week is Resurrection Sunday, which I am very much looking forward to, uh, otherwise known as Easter. So this series is called Death to Division because Jesus destroyed the barrier that sin created between us and God. (coughs) Excuse me. Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus broke down the dividing wall that kept us from knowing and loving God and each other like we were made to. The scriptures are clear that there are no perfect people. We have all sinned in thought, word, or deed. God is totally perfect and totally holy, and that means we cannot dwell in his presence on our own and fulfill the purpose for which we were created. The Bible uses an analogy of light and dark not being able to mix to try to help us understand what the issue is. Uh, The book of Malachi compares God's presence to a refining fire. And so the reality is, without the gift of salvation, by grace through faith in Christ, by which we were made holy and righteous in God's sight, we would be burned up by the intense radiance of his perfect and glorious majesty. We can't go in there with the tattered rags we've earned for ourselves. We must wear the robes of righteousness that Jesus purchased for us with his blood. But I say praise be unto God that through Christ, he decimated the division, and now we can know and be known, and love and be loved by both God and one another. Amen. So let's read Ephesians 6, uh, verses 1 through 9 together, and we'll see what our good Father wants to teach us today. It says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord, and not to men." Knowing that whatever good thing each does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same thing to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Praise God for his word. So before we dive into the instruction and the implication of the first four verses here, I'd like to read all of you something that I wrote recently, and the reason I'm doing this is I think it will help show the importance of these scriptures, while also helping those who are not biological parents from feeling left out, or as if there's no application here for them as we deal with this. Uh, So I'm just going to, like I said, I wrote this recently, I'm going to read it to you. It starts with some verses from Malachi. This is Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. These are the last two verses of the Old Testament. 
I have often pondered their significance, and I'm, not sh- and I'm sure I don't understand all that they mean. It is clear, though, that fathers play a pivotal role in God's redemptive purposes. I can see a glimpse of this in something as simple as playing at the park. I like to take Max and Lucy, those are my two little ones, to a big park close by that has a huge wooden play set. It's like a castle for kids with multiple levels and ways to get up and down. There are almost always lots of kids there playing when we go. Last year, I hollered loud enough for everyone to hear, who wants to play tag? And immediately, as if I was made of some material that is magnetic to children, I had eight to ten kids surrounding me, eyes full of excitement. I've done this four or five times since then, and the result has been the same every time. This caught me off guard at first. In an age where kids have entire virtual worlds to explore by swiping their fingers across the screen, how is a game of tag generating this much interest? Then after we began playing, I realized it wasn't tag at all that drew them. It was the fact that a dad was going to play with them. I didn't catch on right away, but as kids I had just met walked up and held my hand, excitedly pulling me along to escape whoever was it. As they started yelling out, seemingly with no hesitation, dad's it. When I would get tagged, it became clear what was happening. They knew my name was Vince, by the way, because I would huddle them all before we started the game and everyone learned each other's names. This spanned a wide age range as well, the youngest being four or five and the oldest being 12 or 13. The older ones didn't hold my hand, to be clear, uh, but they were all about playing a game that most kids that age would be too cool for. My point here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings salvation and freedom to those who trust him by faith. However, that is not all. The power of the gospel also forms and shapes us as we follow Jesus to be more like him. Both Colossians and Hebrews say Jesus is the exact image of the Father, and Psalm 68 says God is a father to the fatherless. If we are more like Jesus, we will be more like the Father, and he is a father to all who will come to him by faith. So men, listen up. God wants to use us not only to love, encourage, and train our own biological children, but to walk in that fatherly gifting wherever and whenever we can. I believe a man who has no children of his own may sometimes even be more available to do this than a man that does. Ladies, the verses in Malachi don't mention mamas, but the scriptures are full of references to God's love and desire to nurture being compared to the care of a good mom. I know that there are so many children with broken homes or absent parents or present parents who are disengaged, and I know God can use us to show them they matter and they are worth investing in. Maybe you can't play tag at the park. Every time I do, I'm reminded of the effects of sin on my aging body. That's real. That's really the truth right there. The next day hurts. However, I'm hoping you will prayerfully consider how you can notice opportunities to be gospel fathers and mothers and then step up to those opportunities. May God increase our capacity for love and show us how to reflect that love to those who need it. So that ends what I wrote, but what I want to tell you, the the point of all that is, is that everybody needs the influence of godly parents in their life. And for some, that influence only comes through those who allow God to use them as gospel fathers and mothers in the life of others. So as we see these instructions about parenting today, don't believe the lie that they don't apply to you if you have no biological children of your own. And don't believe the lie that your potential to obey these things is limited to your own biological children if you do have them. God's vision is bigger than that.
and, and thus ours should be as well. Uh, so that leads us to verses 1 through 4. So we're actually going to take verses 1 and 4 together and then loop back to 2 and 3 because it kind of breaks weird, uh, and that's the way we're going to go at it. So the first thing I want to point out about verse 1 is that it helps us to see that the Bible does not promote a toxic patriarchy as it is sometimes accused of. Uh, if you don't know what that means, there, there are those that would say the Bible promotes a system where men are superior to women, fathers superior to everyone else, and that... Um, because a lot of times they're looking at things that are reported in the Old Testament and think that the Bible's then condoning something that uh, is not actually true. So the f- verse 1, why am I saying that that helps us see the Bible doesn't push for a toxic patriarchy? The very fact that Paul addresses children directly shows us that he sees them as of equal importance as their parents, and specifically as their father's. Because, see, in a true patriarchal society, it would be understood that the children should just, without question, do whatever their father says. And so there would have been no need for the apostle to address the children directly in his letter. Verse 4 would have been the only instruction needed, right? Because that tells the fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You wouldn't have had to have anything to do with verse 1 or addressing the children directly. But Paul clearly sees the children as people too with a will and decision-making abilities, not mindless property of their fathers. Now, even though verse 1 does address and instruct children directly, it also, by inference, gives directives to parents. Okay, There is a lot of debate today over parenting styles. I've heard a lot of different words floating around to describe these styles. You've got helicopter parents, you've got bulldozer parents, You've got uh, free-range parents, right? But my hope is that we should strive to be biblical parents. You see, verse 1 tells us that children should obey. But that is not something that happens naturally. Children naturally know how to disobey. Children need to be taught to obey. Sin comes naturally, right? Nobody's kids need to go to a class on lying before the first time they tried to skirt the truth to avoid discipline. They didn't need a course on selfishness before the first time they fought with a friend or a sibling over a toy. The Bible does call children to obey, but parents, that means we're called to teach them to obey. I don't know about you, but for me, it is sometimes really hard to do this well. Natalie and I agree that one of the times it is most difficult, Natalie's my wife, if you don't know that, uh, one of the times it's most difficult is when our kids' sin or their ignorance is funny, and we have to try not to reinforce their foolishness by laughing. I don't know if anybody else has experienced this. Maybe you're just more of a hard case than we are. I don't know. But our kids, even when they're doing dumb stuff that's wrong, many times are funny in the way they do it. So for a long time, I have tried to... I've tried to say something unique to my kids every night before bed. So like after we pray and I'm kissing them on their heads and I always have to kiss above their hairline because they don't like the way my facial hair feels on like their bare cheeks. So I kiss them on their little heads above the hairline. Um, I'll say to Lucy something like, you know, I'll say like goodnight sugar plum or baby cakes or honey bun or whatever. It's normally some kind of dessert because uh, she likes to bake. <laughs> so all, all the pet names for her are along that line typically. But whatever I can come up with on the fly, I try to do something different every night. Um, 
First of all, it keeps my mind sharp because, you know, I got to think of something right off the top of my head. But I think I'm hoping it also communicates to them that I'm really engaged with them in that moment and, and I'm not just going through the motions. Um, that's kind of why I do it. So Max is five, Lucy's eight. Max is five, and I'll call him like Iron Man or Baby Hulk or Super Nice Boy or Big Helper, just depending on, you know, whatever I come up with. Um, we went to the monster truck thing recently, so I, you know, it was probably Grave Digger that night. Whatever, you know, <laughs> something cool and tough, because that's, you know, he likes that. Um, but so his are different than Lucy's, but he's caught on to what I'm doing, and so he tries to do it with me when I'm leaving the house in the morning. And so um, eight times out of ten, though, he's, he's not really trying to encourage me. I'm trying to, like, weave encouragement in there. Sometimes maybe a little funny, but I'm trying to build him up. That's not normally his motive. His, normally his, his motive is trying to get somebody to laugh. Uh, and so this week as I'm walking out the door, I'm like, hey, I love you. know, I'll see you later, Max. Love you, homie. And uh, he says, okay, love you. See you later. And then he says a word that rhymes with sock and is often used to describe roosters. So he says, bye, see, love you. You guys got it? It's clock without the L. Everyone there? Okay. Now, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know if he heard that somewhere. I don't know if he just made it up. Because sometimes he's doing, he didn't really, you know, a lot of times he'll be doing something, he doesn't realize I'm walking out the door. So he's coming up with this stuff off the top of his head. So sometimes it's just a jumble of made up stuff. I don't know. So I don't know where this came from, but I had to hurry up. I was already kind of halfway out the door. I had to stick my head out the door and laugh so that he couldn't see me laughing. And uh, my brother, Ryan, who's no help, was there and he had walked out ahead of me and he heard it. And so I'm sticking my head out the door trying to collect myself quickly so that I can address the fact that my son just called me a rooster by another name. And I'm trying to get myself together. And my brother's out in the yard, weak need. I'm talking, he's about to fall out. He's laughing so hard because this just happened. So that's not helping me get myself together. So <laughs> anyways, it, it took longer than it should have. He probably knew what was going on, which is bad. But I ended up telling him, hey, man, listen, that's... It's a word for a chicken, but it's not a nice word. It means other things, so we shouldn't say it. So we got it sorted out. But that's kind of one of the struggles I have in disciplining well <laughs> is not laughing at my kids when they're goofballs. Um, but verse, even though it's hard sometimes and your struggle may look different, verse 1 tells us children need to obey their parents. It tells, it tells us they need to obey their parents and why? In the Lord and because it's right. And so, it, verse 1 tells us it needs to happen and why. Verse 4 gives us some of the how. Okay. Now, before I give you the how in verse 4, I want you to hear some of the other places that this is mentioned in the New Testament because it, it should help us understand the serious importance of this assignment. Okay. So I'm going I'm to read you some other places where children's obedience or disobedience is mentioned. I want you to pay attention to what is around it what God includes with it, and what he's talking about, okay? Romans 1, 28 through 32. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, 
without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Did you hear all the stuff disobedient to parents was sandwiched by? This is not some light thing in the eyes of God. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Again, we see disobedient to parents in a list that most of us probably wouldn't put it with. Is that right or wrong? We wouldn't normally probably understand that it rises to that level of importance. And so we need to understand that this call for us to do what is necessary to teach our children to obey, to discipline and instruct them, that needs to be taken seriously. We need to understand that this matters greatly to God. We need to see that disobedience to parents is listed among some pretty nasty stuff. God doesn't take it lightly, and so neither should we. Now, how do we move forward from here? Well, there's thousands of books on parenting, and now probably millions of blogs, right? I mean, there's, it seems like, <laughs> never mind. So what many of those books and blogs will try to do is tell you exactly how you should raise your kids. I'm not going to do that because I don't think the Bible does. I think Jesus knows that parenting and discipleship aren't that different, and you can't just shove every person through some meat grinder of a formula, and out the other side comes a perfect product. If we try to do that, we're going to fail and frustrate. Different parents are going to need the Holy Spirit's help to raise different kids. So there is room for variance in how we discipline and teach them to obey, but the non-negotiable is that we do discipline them and teach them to obey. You say amen to that? Or are you going to stare at me? Or what are we going to do here? With those other verses even? Come on, y'all. This is real. The non-negotiable is that we do discipline them and teach them to obey. Amen. Verse 4 does offer some universal specifics that we can cover together here. Uh, the first, it says, do not provoke your children to anger, okay? This can happen many ways, but two major ways is by being unnecessarily harsh or being unwilling to instruct them. See, oftentimes we pay attention to the fact that it says, bring them up in the discipline of the Lord, but we forget about that second piece of the instruction of the Lord, which is equally important. One doesn't work well without the other. Unnecessary harshness is often the result, not always, but often is the result of some idol that we have being encroached upon. For example, if we've made an idol out of being great parents, then when our kids are less than great, we can get out of line and respond in unfair ways, unhelpful ways. And there's a lot of idols that can be infringed upon by children, right? It could be career or money or just about anything you can imagine, but let's be honest, kids can be a wet blanket on career goals. And they can cost a lot of money. They do cost a lot of money. 
But we need to ask for God's help that we would never parent our children out of idolatrous anger. It wouldn't be a terrible idea, in fact, to ask God to use our children to expose the idols that rested upon the altar of our hearts unnoticed before. And God can do that. Your kids can push buttons that nobody else could and help you find out things about what's going on in your heart that nobody else could. The little darlings, right? Verse 4 says discipline and instruction. We can't just tell them what not to do. We have to tell them why. And we also need to tell them what to do, right? I think oftentimes we think of parenting and discipline in terms of just saying no to bad things, and that is part of it. We need to tell them not to do things that are going to harm them, not be for their good, they're going to be disobedient to us or to the Lord. Absolutely, that's part of discipline. But what God is really good at as a perfect father, as you read his word, you'll see God doesn't just tell us things arbitrarily. He doesn't just throw out uh, a don't do this and a don't do that. There's reasons for it, right? Now, there may be times where there's less explanation than other times, or you get to think more about the connection of why God would ask us not to do something or tell us to do something. But what we also have to remember is we are not God. And so when you're perfect, you actually can just throw out arbitrary commands. When you're perfect and perfectly loving, uh, there's no question of your authority. You can just, you, you can basically say jump and everyone should say how high, right? That's how, when, when you're God, you get that privilege. But we need to understand that even though we are parents, we, are, we have been given authority underneath God's authority to steward and raise our children. Uh, you know, they're his, they belong to him, but he's entrusted us with the task of raising them and teaching them to know him. Uh, our authority is not perfect. Our judgment is not perfect. Am I, am I breaking anybody's heart here? <laughs> was anybody under the impression that maybe when it came to parenting, your judgment was perfect? I hope not. I hope, I hope I didn't surprise anybody there, but it's something that we, you know, we can all nod about it right now, but it needs to translate into discipline and instruction. And so kids don't just need all the what, don't do, or do. We, we need to have the patience and understanding to do as God has done with us and give them the why. And it can be frustrating, right? Especially when they're little, because the whys are like 250 times a day, Right? But that's part of what it looks like for God to entrust you with another human being to teach them how to live and how to be and how to think and how to understand the world that they're in. And so we'll need God's patience for that. We have to tell them why. But, and we also need to think about telling them at least as much as the things we're telling them not to do, telling them what to do, right? There's research out, and, and it varies depending on who you talk to, uh, but a general consensus kind of meet in the middle number is it takes five positive statements to undo every one negative statement. Uh, and that's true. Actually, Harvard Business Review did this, a study on this in companies with adults. So we think of this normally in terms of children, but it's actually true with adults as well. Uh, but we, we need to understand that. We, we need to count some days maybe how many of our statements are framed in negative and positive ways. Uh, and I'm not trying to advocate that every parent needs to wear a rainbow hat and be Mr. Rogers' tone of voice all the time, right? Because that's, 
not going to be effective with some kids, and it's not realistic. It ain't realistic for me. <laughs> that's, not, that's not how it's going to happen. But what I am saying is we need to be really mindful of not just telling our kids what not to do, but taking the time to explain to them what they should do. And sometimes the best way to tell them not to do something is to explain to them what to do instead. And all of that comes underneath this nomenclature of instruction. And, and this is where I would say to you, you know, read solid biblically-based books on parenting. Read solid biblically-based blogs. Don't let anybody stick you into a place of condemnation and guilt that you may not be parenting by their exact five-step formula because that isn't really realistic. But there is uh, real wisdom in, in going to seek out instruction and, and further insight about from experts on how it is we can do a... I'm, I was going to try to avoid this word, but it's okay. A better job stewarding the precious gift of children. Um, and again, this is not just for folks that have biological children at home. This is folks that have the blessed opportunity to exert gospel influence in the life of anybody that needs a mom or a dad to love them, right? Because there's all kinds of people that need that. So careful with our words. See instruction as very uh, important and equal in importance, at least to discipline. They go together and they need each other. Um, I know my sinful tendency if I was going to, and, and, and I think, so on the other side though, I, I probably overcorrected there. My sinful inclination would be more discipline, less instruction, right? I'm very much would be the tendency as part of, because it was the way I was raised. There, it was not a question. The answer was do this. And if I said why, it was, what do you mean why? <laughs> because I said, you know what I mean? Like that, what, what, why are we having a conversation here? And that has, that has escaped my mouth before, and I've had to rethink that. And some of you out here might be like, oh, this guy, look at this guy. Millennial parenting and blah, 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 blah. Listen, I'm, I'm at, I, I think, I can't remember all of them now because you got Zen, or Gen Z and the baby boomers and you got Gen X. I can't figure it all out anymore. I think I'm like very top of the arc for millennials. Is that right? Yeah, okay, so I'm at the very top. <clears throat> but do not fit the profile of a millennial by any stretch of the imagination. So that also is true in my parenting. I am not advocating here for um, a lack of discipline whatsoever. But what I am saying is I know for sure I have tended more heavy to the side of discipline at times at, at the expense of and with a lack of instruction. And I think we need to be really humble about which way, because you know, I mentioned earlier, there's this idea of, of free-range parenting, and, and you, can, you can give all the instruction in the world, but you need to understand your child is a sinner, and your child is going to need some discipline. The Bible says both, and we need to ask for the Holy Spirit's help to know how to uh, dispense those in a balanced way in season, because that's even going to change, right? When they're three, they might need more discipline than they do instruction, but when they're eight, they might need more instruction than they do discipline. You understand what I'm saying? And we can't, you, you're not smart enough to figure that out. Are you okay with me saying that? I'm not smart enough to figure that out. I need the Holy Ghost help because parenting is hard because my kids are funny and bad. <laughs> They're really not bad. They're pretty good kids, uh, all things considered, but they are funny. <clears throat> okay, 
verses 2 and 3. Uh, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. When children become adults, the responsibility moves from obedience to honor. Grown children are not expected to obey their parents like little children, but they are never released from the responsibility of honoring them. Now, much of how this can work in a healthy way, it relies on the parents of adult children understanding and embracing the transition, which oftentimes is not done. Um, quick example off the top of my head. Like parents of adult children. Part of the goal of what you're doing, part of the mission you've been given in stewarding that child is hopefully while you have them during you know, childhood and teenage years and you launch them into adulthood, hopefully once they've reached adulthood, like they don't, they don't need to call you and, and ask you what veggies go on their Subway sandwich, right? Like the whole point of what you're trying to do is equip them. <laughs> do we... <laughs> Oh man, I tried to think of the most ridiculous thing so I would not strike any actual nerves in here, but I'm judging on body language that maybe we got people calling mom asking how to make the Subway sandwich. I have to think of crazier examples. Thank you, Love City Church. Um, but do you understand my point? The, and, and so here's the thing. Here's the really hard thing for, for many parents of, of adult children. Uh, they like nothing more than for their baby to call and ask, should I do tomatoes or cucumbers on this Subway sandwich, Right? They just want the interaction because they miss the pitter-patter of feet around the house and they're having a tough time transitioning because life is now crazy for them, right? So, but we need to understand that this really, really matters because when this gets out of balance, it, it messes up marriages, it messes up uh, relationships between children and parents, uh, it make, can make it very difficult for adult children to honor their parents. You know, that, I'm kind of using a funny example, but it can get really weird and it can get really wrong, really fast. Um... You know, sometimes this doesn't look like even the, the adult child reaching all the time for the parents. Sometimes it looks like the parents uh, reaching back and manipulating situations and, and doing a lot of weird emotional stuff to, to try to get their way. And still, they still basically want to direct their children's life to the degree they did when they were nine, but now they're 29. And that is not God's design or plan. Everyone cool with that? This is the reality. And so if you're an adult child... You're in a couple, you have a couple ditches of trouble you can get into here in a gospel center. One is, you're the adult child that can't decide whether you should do lettuce or spinach on your Subway sandwich. You need to, you need to have a scripturally inspired, God-inspired tenacity rise up in you to understand God didn't make you to be parented by your parents to the same degree you were when you were nine for the rest of your life. Some level of independence and you stepping out into the destiny that God has for you, you got to grab a hold of that. On the other side, though, you could be somebody that is way too fiercely independent and in so doing forget to honor your parents, which is a command and is a non-negotiable. And so what, where it can be difficult is, depending on what the parents of the adult parents are doing, some really get it, they embrace the transition, they've cultivated a good, healthy, gospel-centered launch plan, and they're, they're doing that. And so that can make it easily understandable how those adult children could honor them. Uh, but maybe at least as often as that is happening, maybe more often, uh, that's not the way it's gone. So there's one of these problems, 
either they're, they're over-involved because the child, the adult child has not been trained properly and still pulling on, on them all the time, or they're over here on the other side and the adult child's trying to push away, but the parent of the adult child's still, you know, trying to dig their claws in because they can't handle the reality that their life is, a, you know, their role in their children's life is about to change, okay? There's a lot of ways we can get this wrong. There, there's really one way to get it right, and we need God's help to do it because it's deeply emotional and it's, it's tough, it's difficult, uh, but Adult, you know, parents of adults, you got to understand part of why God entrusted those kids to you was, was to launch them into the ability to do what it is he called them to do. And if they still need you to pick the condiments on the sandwich, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to accomplish what it is God called them to do. You're going to end up having to do it. That's what the helicopter parent and the bulldozer parent style thing is talking about. Bulldozer parents, an example of that is whatever the lady, oh, it was Aunt Becky from Full House right? Bribing to get her daughter into a college. And the daughter, the daughter was interviewed and she's saying, oh, I don't really care about the studies. I just want to go to football games and party. It's like, sweetheart, your mom is rich. You can do that without having to go to college or get your way bribed in. I don't you know, somebody didn't prepare you very well for how to navigate life. Um, but that's, that's, that's one way that this looks, right? Where parents just they want to clear the path completely and totally so their child never has to come up against any strain or stress or persevere through anything. And you will stunt them and you will totally harm their ability to grow in God and do what it is he made for them to do. I understand the motivation is love, but that, that motivation, well, some of the motivation might be love. Some of the motivation might be an idol that you want to make sure your kid does well because then you'll feel like you did well. Anybody willing to say that? Anybody willing to say maybe that's a possibility on the spectrum of possibilities somewhere for somebody, maybe, in another place? I mean, we're just talking about the verses. Man, I, I didn't pick this. You, got, you, know, you guys know how this works. You could have looked ahead and saw the verses if you didn't want to be up in this today. But you came, so, you know, Right? But, but I'm saying all this because I love you. But listen, let me talk to adult children for a minute. So I, I, I've ridden the parents of adult... This is hard to keep track of. I've ridden the parents of adult children quite sufficiently. Let me talk to adult children. So even if your parents are not doing a great job of releasing you or not being manipulative, or maybe they're just not even godly at all, maybe they're not in the picture, there's a whole host of possibilities it would make it very difficult to understand how to walk out these scriptures that say, honor your father and mother. Uh, when I think about this, I think about David and Saul. I think about the fact that Saul knew David was going to be king. Saul was losing his mind. Saul was not happy about the fact that David was going to be king. Saul was doing everything he could to kill David. Uh, Saul was not David's dad, but they did have a relationship. And he was kind of the older that was supposed to move out of the way and, and let David come in. But if you go back and you read about how David handles Saul during this time, multiple times he could have took Saul out to the point where one time he cut a little piece of his clothes and kept it just to show that that knife could have went to his neck but didn't. He still, in the way he talked about him, in the way he dealt with him, figured out a way to show him honor even though Saul was trying to kill him. You know, I've got some crazy parent stories. I know some of you do too. But, I, you know, for the most part, none of you are having to try to get over the fact that your parents are throwing spears at you. So 
You feel me on that? <laughs> that's, that's all I'm trying to say. Um, I think that story is helpful to try to illustrate, and, and that doesn't necessarily speak to every individual difficult, painful situation that would cause it to be difficult to honor uh, parents when you're an adult, but it, it, it literally doesn't matter what your hurt is, what your complaint is, how bad your parents are. It, it does not matter. Uh, and if you find yourself hearing me say that and saying, okay, well, I hear you, man, but I don't know what to do because of X, Y, Z, the, the specifics of the situation, then I would just say to you, then, then at least take that to God, ask him to help you and walk with you through that and show you what it's going to look like for you to honor your parents, as difficult as they may be making that. Okay? And some of it may just have to do a lot with what you let slip about the mouth gate, right? Because we do a lot of dishonoring with this. Amen. I'll say amen because you didn't. Because I know. You're just marinating in that. That's okay. All right, verses 5 through 9. <clears throat> uh, it says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and, do, uh, and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them, Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours in heaven, there's no partiality with him. Okay, first thing I would say, uh, as many of you know, my preferred Bible translation is the New American Standard Bible because it is by many um, believed to be the most literal from uh, the Greek. Okay, so that's great, but sometimes the most literal isn't the best for getting the point across. I would say this is one of those times. Many of your Bibles, if you don't have an NASB, if you've got an NIV or a KJV or an NKJV, um, maybe ESV, maybe HCSB, CSB, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you've got one of those, it'll probably say bond servant instead of slave, which is really helpful because when we think of slaves, we tend to think of early American chattel slavery which is not a great comparison to what is being talked about here, okay? So I'm going to, here's what, I, I know I've done this with us before, but when we come to instructions, particularly in the New Testament, to slaves, I, you know, I know some of you may have walked through this with me before, but I don't, I don't think we need to be able to recognize, oh, I think maybe I've heard this before. We need to talk about slavery in the scriptures because there's a whole lot of people that stay away from Jesus because they've heard some guy on YouTube say, <clears throat> the Bible promotes slavery. Okay? And I, I'm just hoping out of a motivation of love, even if you recognize, you know what? Oh, I've, I've heard Pastor Vince run this down before. Unless you can teach it to somebody, hang in here with me and keep thinking about it and then go back to this audio and listen to it again until you get to the point. Because here's the issue. Not only are there people staying away from Jesus because they really truly believe the Bible condones slavery, and if the Bible did condone slavery, I'd probably stay away from it too because it's a wicked practice, okay? So there's that. But on the other side, what, what this issue does with Christians is for many of you, this is one of the things that muzzles you because you know the Bible says stuff about slavery that you don't have answers to, and you know somebody might bring it up, and so this is one of the things that causes you to stay quiet when you could open up your mouth and share about Jesus. And so what I'm hoping we can do as we walk through this here right, right now is, 
equip you for the work of the ministry, equip you for making disciples, equip you for sharing your faith in spaces where people may have intelligent questions, because we shouldn't be scared of those. Okay? Now, does the Bible condone slavery? Okay, let's start with history. The slavery described in the Old Testament was pretty different from slavery we think of today, uh, where people are captured and sold as slaves. According to Old Testament law, anyone caught selling another person into slavery was to be executed. This is Exodus 21.16. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. This tells us the kind of forced slavery we've seen in times past based on race or other factors, and the forced slavery we see today in the form of sex trafficking was punishable by death according to the Old Testament. And I am not personally opposed to the same punishment for sex traffickers today, but I digress. There were two primary kinds of slavery uh, in terms of what the scriptures are talking about. One was prisoners of war, which was a merciful alternative to killing them, and then those who sold themselves into slavery. Now, you might be asking, why would someone sell themselves into slavery? That doesn't sound right. Well, we need to consider this. They did not have welfare in the kinds of social safety nets that we have today. And so instead of starving to death, if they did not have the means to provide for basic needs, they would sell themselves into slavery. And they didn't need a wage, they needed shelter and food. It was at that level. Okay? So, and you could be pushing back right now and saying, no, man, this is ridiculous. No one would ever sell themselves to someone and let that person tell them where to go, at what time, and what to do when they got there and what to wear, and what to say and not to say, just so they could have food and shelter. First of all, we shouldn't assume what someone will do for food and shelter until we've gone without those things for a while. Secondly, what I just described to you sounds quite familiar, actually. Let me read it again. See if this rings a bell. No one would ever sell themselves to someone and let that person tell them where to go, at what time, what to do, when they got there, what to wear, what to say, not to say. What's that sound like? That sounds kind of like a job, doesn't it? Eerily close to a job, <laughs> right? Okay. At the job, they just don't house you and feed you, right? They give you a paycheck and let you go do that yourself, you know? <laughs> Probably cheaper. Um, we, we do not believe the Bible condones slavery. But, okay, then how do we square this belief that the Bible does not condone slavery with Paul's instructions here, uh, also in Colossians and elsewhere, uh, as, as well as the instructions given about slavery in the Old Testament? Okay, so we're saying we don't believe the Bible condones slavery, but what do we do with this that we just read? Okay, here's what we do. If you look at the instructions given about slavery in the Old Testament, you see they're primarily about the treatment and protection of the slaves, Harming a slave was punishable up to death, and they were not to work on the Sabbath, etc. And I believe that this could be understood, at least to some degree, in the way that Jesus dealt with divorce, right? Because in Mark 10, Jesus' question about divorce, the Pharisees say, well, you know, Moses said we could divorce a woman, we just got to give her a certificate. Jesus says it's because of the hardness of your heart that that was permitted, right? And then he hearkens back to creation and the first marriage, and he says what God has joined together, let no man separate. And Jesus never dealt with slavery like this specifically, but I do believe we can see that originally men were created equally in God's image, and though sin may cause divisions among us, we are brought together 
by the gospel. I see that uh, in one place, which is Galatians 3.28, very well known. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay? Does the New Testament condone slavery? Even though Paul gives instructions for how slaves ought to behave, this is not him condoning the practice of slavery. Let me read you this from Spurgeon. He says, I do not think for a moment Paul believed that the practice of slavery ought to exist. He believed to the fullest extent that the great principles of Christianity would overthrow slavery anywhere, and the sooner they did, so the better pleased would he be. But for the time being, as it was the custom to have slaves, they must adorn the doctrine of God, their Savior, in the position in which they are. Okay, There is much evidence to support this idea that Spurgeon lays out. Paul wrote the book of Philemon to appeal on the behalf of Onesimus, who was a runaway slave that had come to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry. He tells Philemon to receive him back no longer as a slave, but as a brother, and to treat him no different than he would Paul himself. So Philemon's a rich benefactor that had a slave. Onesimus escapes, comes to Christ. Paul's going to send Onesimus back with a message, and one of the messages is, because of Christ, you better treat this guy like a brother. As a matter of fact, treat him as if I just walked in your house. Listen to this from Paul to the Corinthians. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. That's 1 Corinthians 7, 21-23. Here's the deal. Up to a third of Roman citizens were slaves. And Paul knew even if he denounced the practice straight up, it would not change it immediately. And so he had to speak to them and teach them how to live for Christ in their current situation. His command to those who were free when they were called by Christ, you hear what he said in 1 Corinthians 7? He said, do not become slaves of men. That shows us that this is instruction to those who were slaves voluntarily. What he's saying is if you come to Christ and, and you'd be tempted to sell yourself to somebody to eat, don't do that. Don't become a slave. Trust God to provide. Let the family of God come around you and help you. That tells you, that context strongly helps us understand. Because what, what is he talking about if that's not true? What is he saying? Why would he tell him don't become a slave if there was a choice not to? It's, it's not the way we normally think about it. The Bible does not strictly forbid every sinful practice that man has ever created. Instead, we are given spiritual and godly principles through which we judge right and wrong. The totality of what the Bible teaches leads us to the understanding that we are equal in value because we are made in God's image. And thus, we should not own each other. We should love each other. How does a slave, voluntary or not, being submissive and honest in service of their master, how does that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior? That's what Spurgeon said, that, that Paul was doing. He's teaching somebody that was in the position of being a slave. They come to Christ. They can't change it immediately. How in that station do they serve Christ faithfully? They do that the same way that a godly employee can today. See, verses 5 through 8, they seem to encourage us that when we work with integrity, even if we're not paid as we should be, anybody in here, anybody in here paid absolutely everything you're worth? <laughs> I didn't think so. Some of you are prideful, but... Um, 
Even if we are not paid as we should be, if we work with integrity, even if we're not treated as we should be, we need to remember ultimately our work is for Jesus. He is glorified when his people walk uprightly and above reproach. We should be, as God's people, the most punctual, efficient, and productive people in any workplace we find ourselves. Our work ethic reflects upon the character of the God who we claim to serve. Uh, This is not a popular sentiment outside of those who have a high degree of loyalty to Jesus and his scriptures and want to obey him. Uh, How do I know that? Well, because I saw a meme recently congratulating all of the heroes who wait to go number two until they get to work so that they can get paid for it. And, and, and they're being funny, but, but is there maybe some truth in there? And I'm, look, it's amusing to imagine someone walking into work funny so, you know, so they can get paid for the 10 minutes it takes to defecate. I get it. But it's a pitiful reflection of the way most people think about work. Do as little as possible and only as much as is required to get a check at the end of the week. We cannot conduct ourselves that way as God's people. If Jesus is your boss, how are you going to work? That's the question we got to ask ourselves every day. We need to realize that work is not a result of the curse. That's many times how we justify our, how shall I say, crummy attitudes about work, right? Adam had a job tending the garden before a bite was ever taken out of that forbidden fruit. Many of us need to rethink what paradise and eternal rest means when we think about eternity with God. Many of us think retirement is like, you know, first heaven, and then we'll just die at the end of that and get to second heaven. When the Bible talks about eternal rest, man, go check it out and think for a second what it's talking about. When it talks about eternal rest, it's eternal rest from striving against sin. It's eternal rest from the effects of sin upon the world and the brokenness that it has wrought. It's maybe not eternal rest from purpose-filled, God-glorifying work. I don't have scriptures necessarily that tell us 100% that there's going to be jobs in heaven. Uh, But Adam had a job in the garden before sin ever entered. And part of what God's doing is restoring things uh, to that that precurse place. We see God's perfect design in what he did with Adam and Eve. They had jobs. So I'm I'm hoping the church doesn't empty out next week because you were like, I thought I was working for an umbrella drink for eternity. And this guy says I might have, what, you know, I hope not. But nobody's saying anything, so okay, cool. (laughs) Oh, man. I know, I started, we went to eternity, and that gets real ethereal and hard to grapple with, so you guys were just thinking. You weren't upset, I'm sure. Verse 9 shows us uh, one more way that the accusation of the Bible condoning slavery is unfair and inaccurate. Uh, It says, masters do the same to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. Paul says clearly that they are equals. 
Master and slave were equals. And this would have been scandalous in a society that saw the bondservants as lesser than those who owned or employed them. And so people will say, well, well why doesn't the Bible, well, maybe the Bible doesn't condone slavery, but why doesn't it outright just say that it's not okay? This is as close as you could get to that without just saying those words. That you would have to understand from this. Masters, understand something. You have a master too. And that master is also the master of the one who's in your service. So understand this. You're equal under God. That's a sobering message to a person and to a culture that conducted themselves this way. So what this, how does this help us today? Because I'm assuming none of you own slaves. This speaks to those of you who own businesses, even those of you that just manage people. Remember that your master and their master is the same and proceed accordingly. I praise God that the gospel is the great equalizer of all mankind. Because when we realize the bad news applies to all of us, nobody's perfect. We all have sinned. And when we realize that none of us have any hope unless we embrace the same good news, <clears throat> you're not paying your way into heaven. You're not going to get to some social status here on earth. It means they're, they're going to somehow then be honored to let you in. That's not how this works, man. We, we all need the same good news, and that's that Jesus came and lived the perfect life we couldn't, that he died the death we should have in our place for our sins, and that he rose from the grave triumphant over sin and death. The bad news is the same for every rich, poor person, every slave, freed person. It does not matter. The bad news is the same. We're all in serious trouble without Jesus. The good news is the same. We need him, or we are hopeless now and for eternity. When you start to realize that, the gospel begins, you see what it does. It, it, it brings up the low, and it brings low the high. And it helps us understand we're all standing on the same ground. Praise God. When you believe those things and you understand those things, it makes it really hard to feel superior to one another. It should. Praise God. May we be a people who embrace the responsibility of parenting by the power of the gospel. And may we parent for the fame of our perfect father. May we all celebrate that the gospel destroys every false separation of status. For God's glory and our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for these verses. Thank you, God, for this instruction. Lord, we need your help to obey these things. Uh, we are prone to stumble in many ways. God, as parents, if we really realize... <laughs> What is required to raise and nurture and steer another eternal soul towards you? Lord, if we understood the depth of that responsibility fully, I, I think we would all freak out. And Lord, I ask that you would allow us to realize it to the degree that it would cause us to come to you and declare our need. Basically, God, I'm asking for every single parent that you would bring them to a place, you, you would break every ounce of pride left in them and, and bring them to this understanding. They can't do this without you. Lord, we need you to parent well. We need you, God, to infuse the power of your gospel into every interaction with our children. Help us think about how we deal with our kids through your gospel. Help us speak, Lord Jesus, through the grid of your gospel as we address our children. God, please make up for our inadequacies because 
Lord, we don't have everything it takes to do this. But thank you that you've not asked us to do anything that you've not also promised to walk out with us. So God, we will not leave here discouraged. We will not leave here condemned. God, I know there's a lot of places where every one of us that has had the blessed privilege of exerting gospel influence in somebody's life as a gospel parent or a biological parent, every single one of us, we have done that imperfectly. So all of us could leave here riddled with guilt. But I thank you, Lord, that's not your message. Your message is calling us to hope in you. Your message and the truth of your gospel is that, yes, we have probably failed at parenting, but that the story is not done and that we can reach out and we can grab a hold of your help and we can parent by your power. Thank you for that, Lord. And Lord Jesus, I ask that um, you would continue by the power of your spirit to, to do healing work of reconciliation in our land. God, there are so many ways that people feel superior to one another. Uh, we, could, we could sit here all day and try to list them and, and not get them all. There's so many ways people are tempted to pride. Uh, and God, we just ask that you would continue to destroy those walls. Lord Jesus, you said that in the ultimate way, you brought down the barrier between us and you and between us and one another. Uh, but God, we, we, we are like master masons. We try to build those walls back. We do that work often in our foolishness, and so we ask, God, that you would continue to just decimate and to grind into dust every single false division we would place between us and between you. Thank you that you have the power to do that. you got the tools to bring, to bear on that, to get that job done. God, please, we want to be tools in your hand. Help us to bring healing where there is division. Help us, Lord, to bring freedom where there has been captivity. God, we want to be ambassadors of this glorious, eternal country and kingdom that you've called us to be a part of. And we want to tell people how good our king is. Lord, we ask you to put healing in our hands and in our mouths for your glory and for your fame. We love you and we worship you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.